Welcome to the Art of Unraveling podcast. My name is Erin McGuire, and I'm an empowerment coach and guide here to empower you into feeling completely worthy of a business and life that you love. This podcast is the place to learn how to unravel anything keeping you from that abundant, beautiful life that you so deserve. Nothing is off limits here as we navigate life through psychology, science, and spirit. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of The Art of Unraveling. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to have a dear friend and what I call a soul family member interviewed today on the podcast, Patricia Stevens. I met Patricia through her daughter, actually, who used to be a client of mine. I think I can say that on the air. I don't think Bethany would mind. Bethany was, she came to my very first workshop in Dubuque before I even moved here. And she's just always stuck around. She's like a sister and really has been to a lot of different things. And I remember telling her once like, Bethany, I need a me. And she goes, I need to introduce you to my mom. She's a you. She's She can be a you. <laughs> it was just like, I needed somebody to support me the way that I feel that I support other people. And so I've been working with Patricia doing healing work for many years now. And she's just been such an asset to my team of guides and healers and therapy and all of that kind of thing. And so I'm just thrilled to have her on the podcast today. Patricia, welcome. And please tell us a little bit more about you. How do you define the work that you do and, and that side of the type of thing? Oh, thank you, Erin. It is such a pleasure to be here in this Zoom room with you. Some One of the greatest gifts my daughter gave me was taking me to your circle in Dubuque. That is where we first met. And I believe there was an exchange among the three of us when we arrived, something about identifying that you were the daughter of an alcoholic, and so was my daughter, Bethany. And I am that mother. And so that was kind of how I felt a first bond with the, the three of us, because what I have learned over my 40 years in recovery is that the healing process, no matter what side of addiction a person might live in, there is an immediate bond of knowing. None of us has to say much to the other about what it was like, because there's a, a general knowing. So from there, I got really excited about getting to know you and your work. And the kind of work that I do is energy medicine. And how that came into my life is... In 1982, when I was 35 years old, I did go into treatment for chemical dependency is what they called it in those days. I was addicted to pharmaceuticals and uh, alcohol. And what I discovered is that being abstinent from those crutches left me sicker than I had ever appeared in my pre-sobriety days. That forced me to do some really, really aggressive healing work, starting with the steps in the popular 12-step programs. 
which are very effective when used according to their original intent. Uh, They have been bastardized (laughs) over the years. And I jumped in actually using some of the traits that kept me very sick. I use them as what they call two by four steps. I use the steps to beat myself up, to prove how wrong and bad I was. So that that was the beginning of my recovery. And my daughter has been heard to say, I may have been abstinent, but I was far from in recovery. That took at least 10 years before I actually began to um, get some balance. Another thing that I have seen is that the statistic is 69% of people with alcoholism and addiction have co-occurring mental illness conditions. My observation is it's closer to 99%. (laughs) Um, It was certainly true of me. I've met, I could count less than five uh, fingers, the number of people I have encountered over these 40 years in recovery programs, which involves hundreds of people. Very few don't have co-occurring mental health diagnoses. And often they go untreated, even in recovery. So my quest has been to make sure that all conditions are treated, all trauma is addressed. And that's what you do so beautifully, Erin. The unraveling that you do, the trauma work you do with people is absolutely essential in recovery work. It it was for me, and I've watched a lot of people, I've worked with a lot of people, and that's the key. That's the gold. Once we do the the mental work, do all the analyzing and the, the applying all the psychological principles, it doesn't go far enough. And for me, I was fortunate to meet and be introduced to energy healers. And from there is where real recovery took hold. And I want that for everybody. That's my quest, is that those who seek the magic of energetic unraveling are able to find it. Oh, that's beautiful, Patricia. Oh, I just, yeah, you said so many good things in there. And I think that's a huge part of why I do what I do too, right? Is to help people to unravel what's causing them to do the things, right? What's causing them to drink excessively or take prescription pills or whatever the case may be. There's always, there's something underneath that. It's not just, people don't just go and do those things. There is a reason. That is such an important piece is so many people in recovery communities will say, I was, I was an alcoholic and an addict long before I picked up my first drink or drug. I was set up for it. Hmm. And there's chills. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the truth is being spoken. There's also a lot of research done about genetics Mm. and running in families. And no one will ever know for sure what part of that is DNA, genetics, and what is conditioning in families. It all plays in. And we all know 
families where it just goes from generation to generation to generation to generation. And that that's a fact. What really hooked me in, in very early recovery was the, the phrase, break the chain. I do come from a long line of addicts and alcoholics. I'm the first one that embraced recovery or even admitted to having an issue with addiction. That phrase, break the chain, is what had me just stay the course, no matter how difficult it was, because I wanted my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren to have the chance of not having this disease. And my children have done a lot of healing work for themselves. My grandchildren are all acutely aware that they're at risk, that if they put drugs and alcohol into their bodies, they run a really high risk of early addiction. That's it's, it's science. And so that, you know, wh- whether it's conditioning and family drama and trauma going back generations, who knows, it doesn't matter because the solution is the same, no matter what the causes. But yes, for me, I exhibited extreme traits of codependency. And the overachiever, the being the good girl, not getting in trouble, the caretaker. What happened for me, particularly with pharmaceuticals, is I found that using them, especially um, opioids. For me and a lot of my family members, because of our chemical makeup, opioids act like speed. Wow. So for the more typical body chemistry, an opioid will be a depressant and many people go to sleep. For me, it was like, oh, off and running, baby. (laughs) Get me some narcotics. anything. I can behave in the any manner anybody wants me to. Wow. And alcohol for me was my recreational drug. I actually didn't get in a lot of trouble with alcohol. I was a happy drunk, a fun drunk. So I did not consider myself an alcoholic. When I went into treatment, I was going in for treatment of addiction to pharmaceuticals. I had been in treatment for five years prior from to that point by the University of Iowa neurology and uh, psychiatric departments. What they didn't know at the time was the treatment for addiction is abstinence, absolute abstinence. They believed that they could facilitate behavioral modification and reduction of the amount of pharmaceuticals I was using. That doesn't work. Not for an act. It will work for someone who is not physically addicted. It will not work for someone who has the physical chemical addiction. So for five years prior to going into treatment, I had worked with the University of Iowa. I had been hospitalized three times for withdrawal. Nobody ever told me after you've been hospitalized for withdrawal, don't use on your way out the hospital door. (laughs) It never occurred to me. 
not to use. And so I always did. So there was a woman in my social circle who got sober. We drank together and she knew. (laughs) She spotted that I belonged to her club. And she taught me about addiction. She started teaching me in January of 1982 when we were both at a meeting, a parents meeting, and the literal name of the committee was drug and alcohol use among our youth. We were a committee to prevent that. Oh, my (laughs) And so after one of the meetings, uh, we went for coffee and she told me about herself and took me on as teaching me. And so it was the following August, working with her all this time, and she introduced me to professionals in the field. So I finally did decide to go to, to treatment. And I had no idea what I was getting in for. And had I known, I may not have done it. Because the next five years were absolute hell for my children. And that's what I have a burning desire to help other parents with. And I shouldn't even really, I don't mean to limit it to parents because any relationships that we have are in severe jeopardy in early sobriety. If uh, we don't have all of the the resources we need. I just didn't even, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know that what I needed, in addition to uh, all of the psychotherapy I was in, all the meetings I attended, I at least once a day for five years, if not more than that, I did everything I was supposed Like I attempted to be the absolute model person in recovery. I did everything times 10 that was suggested to me. And I was still literally wanting to die. So obviously I was doing something wrong. And then when I learned and experienced energy healing, I had hope. I had hope that I could achieve what in uh, 12 specs step programs have a phrase, happy, joyous, and free. Like that is what we're promised. If we adhere to the principles of the program, happy, joyous, and free. When I started receiving energy medicine, I had hope for happy, joyous, and free. It took a few more years before I got to happy, joyous, and free. And I I know I'm just repeating over and over, but I can't say it strongly enough it is the energy healing that brings us home. I've literally been writing so many questions to ask you. I hope we have enough time for all that wants to come through because it's just such a powerful story. The energy healing. I love that. I love that that's what resonated with you the most and really gave you that hope. There's a part of me that wants to ask about... Well, first, I want to make a clarification, because as you were talking, I was a little confused about this. And so I just want to make sure other listeners might not be. She said she's abstinent. She was absent of alcohol and then and drugs and then 10 years in recovery. And that 
you said something along those lines, but I think what you meant is you were absent of it. And then it recovery means you're not having it at all. Um, That's the same so thing. Is, the word is actually abstinence. Abstinence. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was abstinent. It means I had no drugs or alcohol. So, and that's the same as being in recovery. That's the same as being sober. Okay. So sober. When we say, uh, yeah, I think sober. you were clarifying something there and that's what I was confused about. So speak into that a little bit more. Yes. Thank you for asking that question. So being abstinent, having no drugs and alcohol in my system does not equate being in recovery from addiction, alcoholism. We talk a lot about the ism of alcoholism, that even though we put down the substances, the ism is alive and well. All of the traits for people, there are a lot of people who are able to become abstinent from drugs and alcohol to be technically sober, but they never do the recovery work. They I, never do okay. work. That's and, an important uh, distinction. That yeah. is an important distinction. Is yes, it is a yeah. very important distinction and opens up a, a whole <laughs> whole new category <laughs> that I, I would love to speak to. So a lot of people have pride in being able to stop on their own. Yeah, that's what I hear. I'm 10 years sober. I'm 30 years sober, but I have never heard the recovery piece, I guess. Yes. And so that does happen. Generally, that doesn't create a very peaceful and happy lifestyle because the isms, the healing doesn't get to happen. So I I do know people in my family, who changed their their drinking and drugging habits, even had periods of abstinence, and embraced some other transformational programs where they did their work and came through on the other side with comfort and ease and a life of pleasure and ease. There are also a lot of people who stop using for decades, never do the work, and are assholes. <laughs> the, the addiction still lives within. The addiction still lives within. The issues, Absolutely. The issues that made the person drink still live within. Absolutely. So I see no heroism whatsoever in being able to stop drinking and drugging with no help. Because that mm. means it just, I actually feel some compassion for those people that, according to everything that I've learned and experienced, can't possibly feel very good inside. There is absolutely, for me and most people that I associate with in recovery communities, there is no shame or embarrassment whatsoever in stepping into the loving embrace of the resources of transformational communities. And we are so fortunate right now to be in an era where there's lots of them. Yes. There, there's, if something doesn't fit a person, if it doesn't feel comfortable, just go to another one. Because 
There's, there's many, so many opportunities out there. And the stigma is still there, however. So the stigma of having to walk through the doors and say, I need help. I have a drinking problem. My life has been totally annihilated through my use of drugs and alcohol. I want to stop. Can you help me? That stigma does still exist, which is one big reason that I'm so excited to have this opportunity. Alcoholism, addiction to alcohol and other drugs is a disease according to the AMA. And we're getting closer and closer to recognizing that, but there's still such a huge moral stigma. The immorality is the actions that we take under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Can I bring up something here? Please, yes. I think this is a good chance to talk about, because I know like growing up with an alcoholic, right? You hear, I mean, and when I was young, I didn't know that I was growing up with an alcoholic because she's very functioning. But later I realized, oh yeah, that's what that was. And so then you start learning when you learn more in Al-Anon or whatever programs you're going to, that it's like, it's not my mom, it's the disease. And I think I can say on the other side of that, that starts to like get at you a little bit because you're like, okay, I don't, let's not make excuses here. And so could you speak into that a little bit? Because yes, it's a disease. We want to recognize that, especially I've watched lots of intervention and it's like, you see these people who just, you just can't function without, right. Without that drug, without that alcohol. And you can see how it is a disease. But I think those that are listening, you know, what would you say to that, that, that it's, it's not your mom, Erin, it's the disease or it's not. Oh, that grates on me too. Okay. I've heard that too. And it's just, yeah, that's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad that I brought that forward. I absolutely agree with that. Another piece of context here is when a person is actively in the disease, it doesn't mean the damage only happens when the person is drunk or high. But the entire persona, for me, I was as damaging to my children at times when I was not severely under the influence. So it's the entire dynamic. It's not just being under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And so Mm. that's such a good point. Yeah, who I was in you know being run by that disease was a despicable person, as is true of most of us. And I dressed it up nicely, as some addicts and alcoholics are able to use all their codependent traits and dress up the uh, the behaviors. But I have heard. It said, love the alcoholic, hate the disease. Mm. Uh, I can't reconcile Mm. that. And the reason I want to emphasize it is a disease is because it needs treatment as any disease does. Yes. A person who has another disease needs treatment, not I don't have a really good analogy. Often alcoholism as a disease is compared to diabetes. 
that is it is easily controlled usually with diet. And then when people know how to treat their diabetes and don't, their loved ones get pretty angry. Mm, yeah. And justifiably so. When those of us with alcoholism know how to treat our disease and we choose not to, that's pretty irresponsible. And it's pretty justifiable that our our family and our loved ones are not going to find that acceptable. But it's so hard too, because it's like, there's such a denial. I know for my mom in her case, there's a lot of denial there. Like a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts, they wouldn't even relate to that. They don't even (laughs) realize. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Especially I think with alcohol and probably prescription medication, it's very easy to be like, this isn't a problem. I need, you know, like alcohol is such a part of our society. Prescription drugs, it's easy to say, well, I need this for my headaches or I need this to calm down, you know, and I think it's easier to like, this isn't a problem. Yes, it is. And if the behavior is almost acceptable, there's a lot of getting getting by, which right. is the worst possible circumstance. There's a lot of, of violence associated with drugs and alcohol. And the stereotype is that that is the norm. There are more addicts and alcoholics who aren't obviously violent, but do their damage in such subtle ways that society doesn't recognize it. And I think that's more common than the violent alcoholic, the one who right. uh, who is really who's actually being illegal with their actions. Right. Yeah, it's the subtle like parent that's there with the child but emotionally checked out. Yes, the drugs and alcohol. Such most people did not believe that I was an addict and alcoholic because I, I dressed it up. They had mm. no idea what it was like for my children because they thought I was just sick a lot because mm. that, that's what I, I created. Even my doctors, when I decided to go to treatment, I had three doctors under whose care I was at the time. It was a psychiatrist my general practitioner and a neurologist, all three said to me, don't do this. Do not check yourself into a treatment program because you won't be able to do it. And it'll be another blow to your self-esteem. Wow. And the people pleaser that I was, my family didn't want me doing it. They didn't believe that was my issue. And it's only, but I, I call it the grace of God, God being the creator of all that is, and a divine spirit, that in spite of these authorities and these loved ones telling me, don't do it, I went anyway. Mm. I don't know how or why I was able to do that. It meant setting up childcare for a month. I was you know, out of the home for a month. I, my children were five and 10 at the time. It was the the most selfish act I've ever done. And I had to, I just Mm. had to do it. 
You said something, Patricia. It's not just the damage under the influence that causes the damage <laughs> in the people around you. It's I did say that. How comfortable do you feel speaking into what you are calling the damage after? Because I think so many people are like, I've heard this from clients and I, you know, they're just like, I just need them to get sober. And nobody realizes what happens once the person gets sober. Like that's a whole other monster um, and issue to deal with. Do you want to, is there anything you want to speak into about that? Like, Yes. And the damage occurred both pre-sobriety, pre-going into treatment and post. My children lived in absolute terror of what would happen to me. They knew they were not being cared for. They were blaming themselves for my depression, for my checking out my uh, migraine was a huge part of my life both before and for quite a few years after sobriety set in so the damage to my children was they felt unsafe and they created some mechanisms for themselves that they were overachievers that thou shalt not have feelings was the law so they learned not to have feelings they learned not to have needs. They learned they were on their own. My son was cooking for his little baby sister at a very young age. They ran the household by themselves. They never knew if I was going to be up yet when they came from home from school at three o'clock. You know, bringing other kids into the house was a risk. How do you explain that your mother is still in bed after school. So they learned to pretend. And they they were very, very good at it. And in some cases still are very, very good at it. They learned that they needed to depend on themselves. So this is still a little bit too vague to speak to what you're saying. Oh, what, where were you going to go with that? Because I was going to also where this is kind of leading me is a little bit to what we talked about yesterday. And if you want to speak to that, like how, or just the thought of like knowing that that happened as it did and how it affected your children. Do you feel any of the implications of that now? And how is that, how have you worked through that? Cause that must be, that must be a heavy thing to carry. Now that you are yes, and 40 I years sober. <laughs> 40 oh, years yeah. is a long time. It's a lot of unraveling. That's a yeah. lot of unraveling. For both of my children, they have had serial relationships in their lives because they had no idea how to do relationship. They had no idea how to navigate, how to be with another person. They've both, you know, done work on that, but their adult relationships were rather preset by their, they watched their father caretake their mother and they watched their father manage everything. Mm -hmm. And so their expectations about a partner in life were pretty skewed and they would both tell you the same thing. So I feel 
comfortable in, in saying that. Another thing that all of us, my children, my family, and most alcoholics and addicts, when physical ailments are made manifest in our body because of our inability to have feelings, to know they exist, to process them, to learn how to unlearn, how to squelch them down. So as as you know, from what you do, a child who learns to not have feelings turns it all inward. And that often turns into physical ailments. So that's been a thing for all of us. But probably the the thing that hurts me the most as a, a mother is that I see two children, grown up children now, who didn't love themselves. Mm. They didn't have any concept of, of what that was. They, because I was totally incapable of exuding love, of giving love, of even though I go through the motions, you know, we had bedtime routines of reading, I went through all the motions, but they knew there was nothing there. Mm. And what they did with that is they thought it was their fault. They thought they were defective because their mother had no capacity to love them. And so that's probably my biggest pain around my children is they, and this is a very typical phenomenon among adults, well, among children, whether they be little or adults, is they came to believe they were unlovable because their own mother had no capacity to give that love exchange with them. And that devastates a child. Mm. That child carries it into adulthood. And my own children are spending their adulthood trying to get to the place to know they're lovable and they're loved. That is the biggest abomination that comes from addiction. I can definitely resonate with that on the other end of it. Yes. That one hits. I'm sure that hits for a lot of people. How do you reconcile that for yourself? Because obviously, I'm not saying to anybody listening to just get rid of that. We have to feel what I would tell people is you got to feel that pain and... You're not, you're not serving by walking around being in pain all the time. Absolutely. And Erin, thank you for asking that question because the primary utmost thing I can do is learn to love myself, to model it for them. That's the only thing I can do. That's Mm. if I don't do that, scratch the rest because it's What's coming through me right now that wants to be shared, by the way, I'm like about to cry because this is just hitting on so many levels. So I'm curious if people listening are going to have the same experience, but just how healing of a presence you've been in my life as somebody who grew up with an alcoholic mother who never got sober is currently still not sober or in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Just you just are such a bright light in that 
in that darkness of addiction and you're so well knowledged about it and yeah you've just I don't know healed a lot of things in me around that mother wound and you know the I don't know I don't really know what I'm trying to say but I think it's felt Mm. I'm feeling that in my heart Erin my passion about this is that I don't want any unnecessary suffering to perpetuate for anyone who's found themselves in in any spot in the dynamic of addiction to drugs and alcohol. It's so far-reaching, the pain. And there is hope. The unraveling that you do. I have become um, trained as an addiction specialist. And so I come not only from my own experience and passion, but I, I do have you know, training in the field. And the reason I became a facilitator of energy healing is because it worked for me. And so I would really want to say to anyone out there struggling, feeling the ramifications of addiction, whether it's your own or someone else's, there is help available. I'm that help. Erin, you're that help. Keep searching until you find your connection with someone who can be your resource. There are so many groups that will steer you in the right direction. They talk about peer support groups. Yes, they work. They're not enough, but they work. So I I feel dedicated in my life to uh, just shout from the rooftops, don't sit in the pain. Mm. No one has to. And I could say that over and over in tons of ways. And I think you and I are both uh, sending that message out energetically as well as with our words so hopefully anyone who listens to this will feel the truth of it yes the only last thing I know Patricia I know you need to go and if you need to hop off now just let me know but the last thing I just want to say is to speak to how our culture views addicts because our culture looks down upon a lot of addicts you know. Absolutely does. And I believe that's because of the behavior right. of addicts and alcoholics. And, and not understanding why are you ruining your life? Why are you treating people so badly? Why are you stealing from your family to go buy drugs? Oh, excellent, excellent perspective. So there comes a, a time, this goes back to the, the disease concept. There comes a time when a person loses choice. And the only thing that matters is getting the next hit, whether it's a drug or alcohol. And that becomes primary. Caring for children, caring about your loved ones gets preempted chemically because the person, myself included, you have to have it. You just cannot survive another day without it. And therefore, what, whatever it takes to get it. And, and that has us do those despicable things. So the intervention of the chemistry is critical. Without the intervention of the chemistry, there's not a chance of stopping that kind of behavior. And people think we don't want to. 
No one chooses that lifestyle. But once there is a line, there's an imaginary line where you can use and do drugs and and misbehave and still choose to stop. And that's where the, the morality and the judgment comes in. And then when we cross the line into physical addiction, the choice is gone. And we just have to do what we have to do. And that's the tragedy. And that's why a person cannot do it alone. It takes medical intervention often. And that's why early sobriety, when people who are not getting medical intervention, but just you know, like go into a program, like a 12-step program, and stop, the whole family dynamic just goes bonkers. Because even the violent behavior may not stop because it's just become automatic. It's become one of those, it becomes involuntary. It literally becomes involuntary because of the body chemistry. And so the, the voluntary actions and behaviors can go on for a period of time. And then, and no one, no one knows where that line is for themselves. And once you've gone over it, it becomes involuntary. And then the behaviors are nonsensical. And that I think is why there's so much judgment and stigma yeah. about it. Uh, incarcerations, a yeah. vast majority of people incarcerated are there because of the behaviors that came out of their addictions. They yeah. still pay for their behaviors. I still had to pay for my behaviors. So incarceration in many cases is required it's necessary but incarceration is not going to resolve the medical condition of addiction right and as as far as uh, the stigma being dissolved i don't know that it can be when it's so wound up in in the behaviors yeah that's true and there's just so much shame. There's shame, a lot of shaming of it. And that's not to speak to anybody that's listening that is currently living with an addict that, and you're like, but their behaviors are so terrible. I'm not, obviously I grew up in that way too. I'm not here to condone that bad behavior and neither is Patricia, but I just think it's important to highlight that as a society, we tend to shame people that are drug addicts, like severe drug addicts, severe alcoholics. There's a lot of shaming that we do there because it's like just stop drinking just stop using the drug and it, what patricia's telling us is that there's literally not a choice in the matter when it gets to a certain point and i think that's just important to say because it's like can we find some compassion for the people instead of walking by somebody you know i was just in tampa and we were in a kind of a bad area by accident having dinner one night it was fine we were safe but it was like we were seeing some interesting behavior going on and it would be very easy to look at that person and go what are you doing you're ruining my dinner you're a bad person keep stop drinking you know you're whatever and to put all the judgment and shame but I think we just as a society need to to check ourselves a little bit on that and find some compassion yeah and not only compassion but resources. Yes. Yeah. It's about money. It is a lot about about money. I know with no doubt whatsoever, I could easily be that woman on the street pushing a a grocery cart 
that had I not been in a family situation where we had the financial resources and the family support, you know, the people who took care of my children, for me to get the help I needed, it was absolutely, you know, there but for the grace of God go I when I see those homeless people. I know it could be me if I had not had the good fortune to have access to the resources. So that when you ask what can society do, whatever we can to provide the resources. Yeah. That's why I am on the board of directors of the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And that's why I'm on that board is to activate to be an activist, Mm. to do whatever I can do to make resources available. And compassion, yes, we need it. And maybe the compassion and the willingness to support resources go hand in hand. Yeah, definitely. Patricia, this was so, so, so lovely. I feel like we could just keep going all evening but I do know that time is getting in our way <laughs> if it hasn't already. <laughs> um, so I will jump off here to jump into yet another class where I'm learning about the neuroplasticity that will give myself and all those who have suffered trauma a chance. So that's where I'm going next. That's where you're going. To- okay, good. I'm glad you didn't have to drive somewhere. What last question, just, I always like to ask this of any guest I have, Patricia, what would you tell somebody who's in the middle of their unraveling right now? Maybe they're unraveling some sort of addiction with a family member or an addiction in themselves, or just unraveling, you know, addiction comes in many forms. It doesn't just have to be drugs and alcohol. What would you tell somebody? What's your advice? You've given us so much advice, but any last words? I would say make it the highest priority of your life. Oh, mic drop. <laughs> wow. I don't think anything else needs to be said after that. That was sublime. Nothing is more important. Nothing is more important. You're healing your trauma because as Patricia is saying, like she stopped that addiction from traveling through her generational line by stopping that in herself. And it came from many generations behind her. So even though life for your children is still unraveling, it's like you shifted that paradigm for them and for your grandchildren by doing what you did. So that's how we heal the world, by the way. That's what I always say. Heal yourself, heal the world. (laughs) Yeah, one person at a time but it does spread out. Thank you so much for everything. I'm sure people are going to have more questions. Maybe we'll have to bring you back again. And we will leave information about how you can find Patricia and her services below this podcast if you're interested. Thank you, Patricia, for being here. My honor. I love you, Erin. I love you. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you liked this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. If you would like to connect with me more, you can find my website, my services, and my social media links all in the description of this episode. Remember, you are a beautiful and divine and powerful being, and it's time to own it.